Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this Independence Day. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, as we celebrate both the Fourth and Dr. Harry Jaffa, a great student of the Declaration of Independence on the Fourth of July, who for many years uh, I replayed his interview uh, in the afternoon. But we've moved to the mornings, and Dr. Arn has moved to uh, Dr. Jaffa has moved to his reward in the last year. And Dr. Arn, his student, agreed to spend a couple of hours grabbing some of the greatest hits of my conversation with Dr. Jaffa from more than a decade ago. And on the Declaration of Independence on this 4th of July. And Dr. Arn, I want to play for you. I asked him whether or not Lincoln and Jefferson actually meant it when they claimed that all men were created equal. Here's what he said. Cut number nine. In the first place, you have to be clear as to in what respect they held that all men are created equal. They were equal in their rights, the rights with which they were endowed by their creator rights which were theirs under the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, Jefferson, for example, admitted that there were great inequalities among white men. Uh, He also thought that maybe Negroes as such were inferior in intellect or uh, in rational and various abilities, even in athletic ability, because he thought that they were inferior in both body and mind. He speculated that that might be true. But he said that has nothing to do with their rights. He said, Sir Isaac Newton may be my superior uh, in every human respect, but that does not give him any right to control my person or my property. But Jefferson owned slaves. That comes the retort, no matter. Yes. So his speculation seemed to have trumped his ideology. Well, uh, Let's put it this way. Jefferson, like all of us, was born into a world that he didn't make. Uh, and, uh, and, to, and, and the two uh, have ideas. And Jefferson's ideas did more in the course of time to change the world than probably any man that ever lived. But to expect him to have changed the world simply because he was born into it or that he had these ideas is simply to not understand the nature of human it's- experience. <laughs> that makes me laugh even when I hear it, Larry Arn. In other words, you don't. Uh, do you know what you're saying, Hewitt? Yeah, yeah, isn't that good? He, uh, he, he, it's the thing he loved to say in class. He would say the miracle of the founding is not that they committed this seeming contradiction, uh, uh, this contradiction, in fact, contradiction between announcing the equality of man and, and keeping their slaves. By the way, they did liberate slavery over most of the Union pretty soon. The miracle, he said, was that a bunch of slaveholders should articulate the principles of the Declaration of Independence on the explicit understanding often proclaimed that it condemned slavery. That's the miracle. That is a miracle. And I asked him about that and where it came from, because those framers were steeped in classical education. So I asked him what birthed that Declaration of Independence. Here's what he said. Cut number 10. Jefferson wrote a letter to Henry Lee in, I think, 1823, which is the most extensive exposition of what his intention was. He said it was not to find out any new ideas or invent anything new, but to present the common sense of the subject as it was found in letters, sermons, lectures, and the elementary books of public right, as, for example, Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. Aristotle, Cicero, Locke. Let's start with those three. What did Aristotle say that he bequeathed to the framers in Philadelphia? Well, I think that the idea of nature as the norm for human behavior, 
that clearly has its origins. What does nature as the norm mean? Well, when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, what he meant by that, explained in part at least, is there was no difference between man and man, let's say any human being and any other human being, as there was between man and dog, for example, or man and God. Uh, the authority that a human being has over horses or dogs or other animals comes from nature because of the difference in nature that makes man so superior to the inferior species that he has authority over them. There is no difference between human beings which makes one human being the master of that other human being because of a difference in nature. Then I went and asked him about, okay, that's Aristotle. Here's Cicero, and uh, I asked him what the Cicero impact was. Cut number 11. Aristotle did not have any uh, explicit concept of natural law, meaning a law which was transnational or international, which governed people with, uh, without respect to their membership in particular political societies. Cicero did. Cicero did in part because the Roman Republic had conquered the ancient world and had created a kind of international municipal law through the power of the Roman legions. And so the Stoics thought of of a law governing mankind independently of positive law. So, and Cicero's conception of, of natural law was developed greatly in the Christian West by Thomas Aquinas. And then we went uh, on from, to talk about Locke and cut number 12. This is what he said Locke contributed. In Aquinas and in Hooker, uh, the idea of, the, uh, of, of, of authority proceeding from, from kings or princes, uh, the idea that authority originated in the people and not in, in custom or, in, or in just in the objective truth of laws. I mean, the, the Decalogue, for example, the prohibition against murder, theft, adultery. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Well, not all Ten Commandments. Okay. Keep going. The first, the first, the first uh, tablet has to do with our relationship to God. The second one, our relationship to each other. Although the Fifth Commandment is ambiguous. Uh, but uh, these things were recognized as being intrinsic to, human, uh, to, to the welfare of human beings. Uh, no human society can. Uh, so these were prohibitions recognized everywhere. But that all law had its origins in the authority of the people, that was something new which was not in any, for example, in any democratic idea before the American Revolution. So Cicero, Aristotle, Cicero, and Locke, and by the way, Dr. Arn, I know why you never got done with a book when you talked with Dr. <laughs> Chopper. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it, but but it, it was this new to him, or would the framers have said, "Yes, you're right. That's exactly what we were doing." Uh, well, we can only you know. First of all, the framers were politicians and they were statesmen, and so their arguments are you know amazingly erudite. But also their practical political arguments. Professor Jaffa is a scholar. Uh, he's like a classical scholar in this way. He speaks in ordinary terms. He's been using a lot of technical terms, you know, when you hear him. He never did. Nope. Uh, he's very analytical. I mean, he is simply brilliant, you know. I mean, he's such a mastery. Um, but what I think is what he says about them is built up out of their words. 
And that's a, that's a, a very profound point. Uh, I studied with two main teachers, I guess you'd say, uh, Harry Jaffa and Martin Gilbert. And they are so very different. But I know where they, you know, where they came together. Uh, Martin Gilbert was a historian. He wrote narrative histories out of the documents. But he would always say, the past is real. And when the documents exist, there is no reason or license to speculate. You can read what they say. Uh, one of Professor Jaffa's favorite quotations, it's in both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. And that states something about nature, right? One of the first things you have to teach people in education, the thing I learned more than any other from Professor Jaffa and his students and my fellow students of his, was that you have to approach things as if they are real and find out what they're like. And so this work that he's done on the American founding in Lincoln is, in my opinion, a great act of recovery and therefore not foreign to them at all. And and not be, being not foreign to them, meaning, I think, that they would have consented to his interpretation of their work. I agree with that. You know, I we have a we who study, you know, his we we anybody who studies a great figure, in my opinion, if they do it uh, in the worthy way, will marvel at them. Sometimes I often say to myself, "How did Churchill know that?" I know how I knew it. You know, I had some great teachers, and I spent many years teaching and thinking about it and talking to people about it. And you forget that. Churchill is just like us in that regard. He's looking at the world and trying to make sense of it. And he just was particularly good at it. And the same is true of Lincoln, and the same is true of the founders. And so Jaffa understands them. One of his great, he gets this from Strauss, one of his great rules of procedure is, you must understand a thinker as he understood himself before you make any attempt to understand him better. We will be right back on this 4th of July talking about the Declaration of Independence, the men who wrote it and ratified it, the men who lived it, the men who studied it, Harry Jaffa in particular with Dr. Larry Aaron at Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus, the speech digest. It's absolutely free. That will be your Declaration of Independence from conventional thinking. If you go and do that during the break, I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Celebrate the day the right way. Stay with me for the rest of this hour as Dr. Larry and Aaron and I celebrate the Declaration by uh, going back over an interview I conducted years ago with Dr. Harry Jaffa, a scholar of the Declaration of Independence. In the last segment, Dr. Aaron, president of Hillsdale College and all things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu, you mentioned Leo Strauss. Therefore, I'm going to go to Dr. Jaffa's teacher, Leo Strauss. I asked him about Leo Strauss in the course of that interview. Let me play those cuts and get your comment on a cut number 22. I've been sometimes asked, who are the greatest men? Who was the greatest man of the 20th century? And I sometimes uh, often or will answer, the, greatest, the two greatest men were Winston Churchill and Leo Strauss. Winston Churchill, known throughout the world. Leo Strauss, known almost nowhere. But what Churchill was to Hitler, Leo Strauss was to Martin Heidegger the philosopher of National Socialism. And I add to this the fact that Churchill seems to have, his victory over Hitler seems to be complete. Uh, the Third Reich was destroyed, Hitler's committed suicide, and the world has 
seen at least something of freedom as it would not have had Hitler won the war. Uh, Strauss has not been victorious. He's been victorious over Heidegger in terms that he has, he has provided the, the reasons, the philosophic understanding, which has within itself the power of defeating Heidegger's doctrines, you see. But Heidegger is enormously popular. Uh, the reason that, that Scalia and Rehnquist believe these things are because that what Heidegger's influence uh, or you might say pre-Heideggerian influence of, of Nietzsche and uh, uh, was the, I'm trying to think of the name of the Carl uh, Max Faber. Uh, Larry Arndt, how compact and beautiful is that? Mm. Yeah, you see, Heidegger, um, Heidegger, you know, defends, he is a member of the Nazi party and holds an office under the Nazi party, an office you couldn't hold if you were not a member of the party. And now is emerging his diaries, which are called, what, the black books, because they were in some black oilskin cover. And come to find out, he was a, a more thoroughgoing defender of the program of the Nazis than was previously known. And what does he teach, really? He, well, first of all, it's very complicated. Heidegger is a modern philosopher, and that means there's a lot to penetrate that's new kind of jargon that makes a system. But Heidegger's teaching about being and about our understanding of the good of things is always contextual. And we have some agency in the making of the context. That's what historicism is about. And that led him to think. I mean, there's a passage that I read the other day, been, been translated into English lately from these diaries. And it's, he says something to the effect that it's too bad about the Jews, what has to happen to them. But someone has to suffer for the greatness of the German people to be realized. And that thing, when you get there, then... You can do anything to anybody. Yep. And that's what Strauss rebelled against. And that's what Abraham Lincoln rebelled against. Remember, Lincoln, Lincoln, one of uh, Lincoln's uh, condemnations of slavery, which were high and moral, and which did establish the rights of the blacks, even though he didn't fully draw that out all the time. His condemnation was, it's the old serpent, isn't it? You work and I'll eat. He also, I asked him about uh, Strauss and his City and Man book, cut number 23. Profound crisis. Uh, it's shown on the campuses that there is no, uh, what, is the, what is the ultimate human good as defined by philosophy professors on our campuses today? A very popular expression of this that, is that the highest human good is the emancipation of the uninhibited self. Emancipation. Well, the greatest example of an, of an emancipated self that I can think of is Adolf Hitler. He did exactly what he wanted. Uh, every man would like to be a tyrant, you see. Uh, so the the idea that the emancipation of the uninhibited self is, this is the human freedom is defined without any regard to any objective moral principles, whatever. This is the dominant opinion on our campuses today. This is the opinion that underlies what is called political correctness. And it is not the opinion in the Declaration of Independence America. More on that when I return with Dr. Larry Arn on this 4th of July. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
33 minutes after the hour on this 4th of July, America. Happy 4th of July to you. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guest is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, where the Declaration of Independence is alive and well, and like the campuses that Dr. Harry Jaffa was talking about in the last segment. Dr. Jaffa passed away this past year. He was my guest in, in audio tape for many years on this program on the 4th of July, and I asked Dr. Arn to join me today to recall not only the Declaration, but also Dr. Jaffa's scholarship of it. Uh, when we went to break there, we were talking about the, the crisis on campuses, uh, Larry Arn. It, it seems to me not coincidental that if you talk about the great document, you end up talking about the great men. And if you talk about the great men, you talk about the great evil men as well. It, it, it always comes up in the same conversation. Yeah. It, uh, um, these claims of right. So what you learn from the classics, and if you study them the way Professor Jaffa did, you learn it firmly, right? You can't forget it. Um, these claims of right infuse everything we do. Hitler himself was making moral arguments, right? His argument was not what Professor Jaffa said. His belief was that, but his argument was, we can win greatness for all people by making the racially pure German people the masters of the earth. They can, they can overcome all the mediocrity in the world and be excellent, and everything else can live in relation to their excellence, right? Well, if you just listen to those things, never mind that they're crazy. Those are also claims about good, right? Hitler's claim was that his regime was good, and that distorted claim raises the question of the good and invites you to think about it. That's why it's so important for these totalitarian regimes to punish what people say. Uh, one of Churchill's great, you know, look at, these, look at these Islamic tyrannies, right? What are they like? What's it like there? If you raise an objection, they will hunt you to the ends of the earth. And so, so Churchill's point was, Think of the weakness of these men there in the Nazi regime, that they sit quivering that somebody will say something. Yeah. Yeah. I also asked him about Lincoln because the 4th of July was was celebrated by Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, which is a November address, but it was about a battle fought on the 4th of July, Gettysburg. And I asked him about Lincoln and why he was different from other tyrants who often destroyed republics. This is what Dr. Jaffa said about that. Cut number 14. Lincoln was committed to the Constitution, uh, and he was committed to seeking political change only through constitutional means. The Constitution, the antebellum Constitution, meaning before the 13th Amendment, gave the federal government no authority over the domestic institutions of the individual states. And one plank in the Republican platform, which Lincoln repeated in his inaugural address, was that the preservation of the sovereignty of the states over their domestic institutions. This was essential to the perpetuity of our, of our political institutions. And the, now the abolitionists, or at least the extreme abolitionists, were ones who believed that any, politi- any power that could be summoned to destroy slavery was justified. They thought that any time Lincoln or any president had the power to intervene to destroy slavery in the states, he should use it. Lincoln rejected that. And, and in rejecting the Napoleonic approach, he was rejecting the, the approach that the abolitionists were recommending. Uh, Lincoln insisted that, 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 that as president, 
uh, as a candidate for president and as president, he was seeking only such authority uh, as the Constitution conferred on the federal government. Now, and wait a minute, he, now he, he was that all of that authority was concentrated on one question in the decade before the Civil War, and that was the question of the territories. And the only aim that the Republican Party had in 1860 in gaining the presidency was to prevent the extension of slavery into the territories. Now, here's the now it was a common belief, uh, and I think generally accepted, and I think can be accepted by us, that if slavery stopped expanding, it would have to contract. It could not stand still. So Lincoln was confident that if the extension of slavery could be finally stopped, that slavery, that a process would be initiated, which would take place within the individual states, just as, it, just as the individual states had abolished slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line after the, between the Revolution and the Constitution. Uh, so the process would be begun which would lead to the emancipation of the slaves in the slave states themselves. Now, Dr. Arnold, I have to ask you, um, do you think that Lincoln foresaw that the Civil War was inevitable after his election, even though he believed, as Dr. Jaffa just said, slavery would go extinct if limited to where it was intended to be limited by the Constitution? Do do you think he saw the dominoes falling? Well, uh, first of all, you have to isolate when they began to fall. Um, when Lincoln ran in 1858 against Douglas for the Senate, he he intended to destroy the position of Douglas, which was that each state should, could decide for itself about slavery. It didn't have any moral significance to the rest of the Union. And in fact, not really even any moral significance for the people who decided, however they decided. And that was a plan for peace by Douglas. Lincoln had an alternative plan for peace, and that is we will preserve the Constitution, leave it where it is, but not let it grow. I think in 1858, he thought that that, I think he thought that was right. So you had to do it that way, because if you don't proceed lawfully, then you're destroying the whole structure of law. So I thought he, I think he thought he had to do that. But in addition, I think he thought that would work. In other words, that that could be accepted. But then 1859 and 1860, and in the run-up to the campaign and the election, and then especially after the election, then steps began to be taken for secession. And the, and the uh, rhetoric in the South and the North, became, but especially in the South, became more violent. And so surely by, you know, I mean, I know Lincoln didn't make any speeches between the time of his nomination until he got on the train to go and be inaugurated. He didn't, he didn't make any speeches in the campaign. And that was customary. Stephen Douglas sort of broke tradition and campaigned himself in that 1860 election all over the South. But Lincoln did write, uh, draft, uh, write in a couple of letters and draft a letter to President Buchanan to say, if you start giving up territory to these guys, I'm going to announce that I'm going to undo that when I take office. So he saw the war coming by then, for sure. All right. And then I asked Dr. Jaffa about the second inaugural, which is appropriate on this 4th of July to reflect upon one of the great messages of American history, Lincoln's second inaugural. Here's what I asked him about the importance of that. Cut number 17. It would be impossible to exaggerate its importance. 
it was I can't say that it was a greater speech than the Gettysburg Address I can't say that anything but it certainly was Lincoln at the peak of his of his uh, philosophic theological and political powers uh, it was most of all a uh, a statement that the Civil War was a punishment for the sin of slavery and that North and South were equally uh, subject to to uh, punishment for that. Does it rebuke those who would make common cause with sin for a time in order to achieve a greater end? Because if, in fact, it's a punishment, then that means the framing, the Constitution, was misconceived, doesn't it? No, uh, I think that the the Constitution certainly represented uh, a com- involved a compromise, but it involved a rational compromise because any alternative, if the Constitution had not had these compromises with slavery, it would not have been ratified. Had it not been ratified, another constitutional arrangement, which would have been much more favorable to sla- slavery, would have taken place. So, from that point of view, I would say the founders are not to be punished, but are not to be held accountable. But Lincoln quoted the, the, both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that the offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh, you see. And Lincoln afterwards said he thought that this reflected as much on him personally as upon anyone else. Uh, but he said, still we must say that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, in other words, the founding fathers said he himself did everything they could, but it was not enough. Uh, but the, the scripture says that uh, woe unto the world by whom the offense cometh. That seems to be the, that's what the Bible teaches, and that seems to be the experience of mankind. Dr. Arn, do you agree with that assessment? Mm. Um, if you think like Lincoln, then you think this way. You think that the the principles of the Declaration of Independence are universal, and they become embodied in a nation. That the nation then has a mission to represent those principles. Then you think that the laws that are passed in the Constitution provides a structure for those principles to live and for a people to govern themselves under it. It's precious. The Constitution is imperfect, of course, but if you read uh, Madison in the run-up to the making of the Constitution in an essay he published called Vices of the Political System, we are encouraging vice among ourselves, and our union is going to come apart, and we lose the Declaration of Independence that way. But Professor Jaffa's point then following that is principles may be perfect. Human beings are not. Are not. And so we will never have perfect laws. Lincoln says very famously and beautifully um, uh, in, in a speech, and uh, I'll recount that if I've got one minute. You do. Uh, July the 10th, 1858, closest thing to an actual Fourth of July speech Lincoln ever gave. He, uh, it's the form, it's the most beautiful of all such speeches, in my opinion. And he starts out the way they always start out. My, what a great country this is, and look how wonderful it is. And look how big it's become. And look how proud we are of it. And what an achievement. And then he says, uh, and we think back on those days in the beginning when, uh, when 
the founders started it, and we think that they must have been iron men. They fought for their principles, he says. But then we see a problem, and that problem is that we are not blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the fathers who came before us. We come later. What makes us all the same, and that is the electric cord of the principles of human equality. It's there, and that is always to be striven for, never to be perfectly attained. And we are... We are celebrating that electric cord today. Stay with me. One more segment with Dr. Larry Arn on this 4th of July. I hope you've enjoyed America this 4th of July conversation with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. I want to close our conversation, Dr. Arn, by playing for you from my old conversation with Dr. Jaffa about the Declaration of Independence, what he said about the meaning of the pursuit of happiness and his definition of virtue, and have you conclude by on, on reflecting on those two comments. First, cut number 24, Dr. Jaffa, on what it means to pursue happiness. The articulation of the meaning of the word happiness uh, for the Western tradition for more than 2,000 years has been that given by Aristotle in the, in the Nicomachean Ethics. <clears throat> And the word in Greek that is usually translated as eudaimonia, which means to have a good daimon. Uh, another word is, is makarios, which refers to wealth. Uh, but uh, the meaning that the word has for Aristotle is defined by Aristotle himself. It is that good for the sake of which all other good things are sought. Uh, happiness does not... Aristotle says consists in wealth because wealth is an instrument. Having wealth uh, is good for the things that you can do with the wealth. And the question is, what can you do with the wealth? Uh, Happiness is not good simply for the sake of honor. Why? Because honor depends upon the character of those who give the honor as well as, in other words, to be admired and honored by, by stupid or vicious men does not mean that the honor is worth anything. Uh, Stalin, for example, used to have these parades throughout the Soviet Union with praising him and with banners, and and, and he would look at the parades and and think that, gee, what a great man am I. Of course, he ordered the the parades himself. When Churchill was honored by the the parliament, it was by a parliament which had already rejected him as its leader. But the, the tributes of free men, freely given for honorable deeds, mean something, but honor itself is a questionable good. Well, Aristotle's final conclusion is that, and this of course needs to be art- is articulated throughout the 10 book of the Nicomachean Ethics, that, uh, that happiness is an, is an activity of virtue in a complete life. And so the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of that. I also asked him to define virtue, cut number 25. Aristotle goes through the entire list of, uh, list of virtue, beginning with courage. Uh, and going on to temperance and then on to uh, magnanimity and then into justice and finally into happiness uh, and to friendship. Uh, uh, virtue is an activity uh, in accordance with right reason with respect to the different occasions in which human beings make judgments of right and wrong in order to be able to act well. Uh, for example, courage is an activity of acting well in the presence of danger, and to neither be not to run forward into danger needlessly nor run away from it in a cowardly manner. The temperance is the right act, the, the mean between excess and, and def, uh, 
deficiency with respect to the pleasures of taste and touch. So, Larry, is it right to end up talking about happiness and virtue on the 4th of July when we should be talking about freedom? Happiness occurs twice in the Declaration of Independence. It occurs first in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then it, uh, it, it occurs when it says that uh, when people, they, if, if people are to throw off their government and choose new forms most likely to affect their safety and happiness, which Professor Jeff would always point out, is the alpha and omega of, of Aristotle's politics. Huh. Now, why is happiness mentioned? The answer is that is, after all, the goal of freedom. And to fail in happiness, to fail to practice the virtues, is to become the slave of the vices. And so people say sometimes the Declaration of Independence is all wrong because it doesn't name responsibilities as well as rights. Well, first of all, they should read the dang thing. But second of all, it's profoundly apparent in this treatment of happiness. What do we want? What do we want for our children? We want them to be free. Do we want them to be free to do whatever they please? We want them to live well. You know, at Hillsdale, we had commencement the other day. The best I've ever seen, Clarence Thomas, was the speaker this year. And what, what is the point of commencement? The only appropriate thing at commencement, apart from thank yous, is speeches about living well. And free people get a chance to do that. And that is the declaration, and that's what we celebrate today. Dr. Larry Arndt, thank you for going back. I hope it's been more than nostalgia for you to hear your old oh, professor. It's a beautiful and great thing. I, I, you know, I love that man, loved him since the day I met him, even, as I say, when he was typically ordering me about. <laughs> so we share that in common. I remember that interview very well. Dr. Arndt, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July to all of you. I hope you go and read the entire Declaration of Independence for yourself from start to finish, perhaps out loud in a group, and enjoy the rest of the day as we all do as free people any way we care to celebrate the day. But you might begin it with the Declaration of Independence. Don't go anywhere, America. This great radio station will be with you throughout the entire 4th of July, bringing you the very best in entertainment on this, the very best of American days. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. You know, God done shed his grace on thee. See?